0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires
1: downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May thirty one. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Mathematics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Corey Brunson, a host of the channel, and I'm talking today with Chris Blakely, author of Poems That Solve Puzzles, The History and Science of Algorithms, published in 2020 by Oxford University Press. This is a remarkably readable biographical and technical history of algorithms that I think must lie close to the Pareto frontier of accessibility and rigor. Perhaps strategically or perhaps inevitably, maybe Chris can tell us, the coverage builds naturally from the earliest algorithmic routines to the high-profile achievements of modern AI. I'm excited to talk with the author today through some of the selections from the book. Chris, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks very much for inviting me, Corey.
0: So to begin with, could you say a word about your own mathematical trajectory, and in particular when you began to study algorithms?
1: Sure. Um, so I guess I went through the, the usual um, mathematical education in school. Um, it was really in, in secondary school and high school um, that I got interested in programming uh, for the first time. I my parents bought me a computer, a Sinclair ZX Spectrum, for Christmas and. I taught myself how to program. Um, so at that time, I didn't really appreciate what an algorithm was, I was just writing programs. Uh, but it got me the bug for computer science. Um, so I, when I finished high school, I uh, joined Queen's University Belfast in Northern Ireland to study computer science. Um, and after that, I did a PhD degree in Dublin City University um, in the area of electronic engineering. Um, and then I went into industry, uh, for about seven years, uh, working on chips and communications, uh, software and hardware. Uh, and in 2003, I joined university college Dublin, uh, where I still work and I'm an associate professor, um, of computer science. I'm currently head of the school of computer science at UCD. So I guess I've moved between academia and industry over the years, um, uh, I enjoy research, but I also enjoy applying uh, the algorithms and programs that I've developed to real-world problems.
0: And based on many of the stories from the book, that seems to be a pretty good background for uh, the writing of this book. There's a a big, there's a fair amount of cross-cutting and cross uh, collaboration between the academic sphere and the industry sphere. So let me ask. When writing this book, what were your goals and who was your target audience?
1: So the idea from the book um, came from a few years ago. I noticed in the news media, um, there were suddenly lots of references to the algorithms. Um, And this struck me as strange because it was originally quite a technical term. So there were articles in newspapers about the Google algorithm and the Facebook algorithm and algorithmic bias and... Uh, AI algorithms, um, and it, it seems to me that a lot of people, maybe writing the algorithms, or writing or sort of the articles, and 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 even reading the articles, um, didn't really understand what an algorithm was. Uh, they knew it was something to do with computers. They knew it was something to do with programs, but really didn't have any context. Um, so I thought you know a book would be really useful for people to inform them. Um, about what algorithms are and where they came from, uh, so uh, I set about writing the book. I suppose it's four years ago now um, to try and explain to the general reader, so somebody with an interest in science and technology but not a specialist, um, what algorithms are, um, and in try to tell the story of how they came to be and um, the history of the people and uh, the projects and that led to the creation um, of these great algorithms that uh, I find very interesting.
0: So let's begin getting into the content where you begin in the book. What is an algorithm?
1: So an algorithm is a well-defined sequence of steps that solve an information problem. So an information problem could be as simple as sorting a list of names into alphabetical order or it could be as complex as trading cryptocurrencies. Um, so there's a wide range of algorithms being developed over the years to solve lots of different information problems. Um, but it's the idea that these problems can be solved by, these, by following these simple steps. Um, and if you can solve a problem in that way, it's very powerful because you can write down steps. That means other people can solve the problem and can compare the way that you're solving the problem with how other people are solving it. Um, and you can preserve that. You know, if you write it down, it's preserved for um, as long as your your document lasts. So uh, it becomes um, a cornerstone for future developments and algorithms. And I think the importance of algorithms really transformed with the invention of the computer. So in the 1940s, uh, first computers were uh, built. And really, what a computer is, is it's a machine that performs algorithms. So your algorithm, your sequence of steps, gets encoded as very simple steps that the computer can perform one after another. And that will solve the information problem in, in the computer. Big advantage of the computer, of course, is it can... So it can perform these very simple steps at extremely high speeds. So you can get billions of these steps done in a second, where if you're doing it manually, you maybe get two or three done in a second. So algorithms went from being a mathematical curiosity uh, to something that everybody relies on every day to and their desktops and their, um, their smartphones. So algorithms are the basic concept of steps um, that's behind all of the software that we, and apps that we use all the
0: time. And before getting into some of the earliest algorithms, which are focused on arithmetic tricks or arithmetic procedures, <clears throat> um, you do have a good tactile example in the introduction of book sorting algorithms as an illustration of not only what an algorithm does, but how they can be improved and honed upon and tested. So I wonder if you could talk through that case study i know it's fairly common i think in in introductions but it's a pretty good place to start
1: sure yeah so uh the example i use is is sorting um a pile of books um into alphabetical order could be the alphabetical order of the author or whatever Um, so there have been a lot of different algorithms proposed over the years for doing that um the uh Probably the one that most people use naturally without knowing anything about algorithms when they're given a pile of books to sort to put on a shelf um, is, um, is, is an algorithm where you just take a book at a time and you put it in the right place. So you pick up a book, you put it in the shelf, the first book, second book, you scan what's in the shelf to see where it should go. You insert it and then you go on to the next book, you scan across the shelf, you see where it should go, you should insert it. So that's algorithms called insertion sort, not very imaginative. Um, there's another algorithm uh, that can do the same task called um, Quicksort. And the Quicksort algorithm um, performs the same task, but does it much faster. Um, doesn't make much difference for small numbers of books, but makes a significant speed up for large numbers of books. And the idea um, behind Quick Sort is that you you go through your pile of books, sorting it into two piles. So you pick a pivot letter, uh, which splits the books into two piles. So anything that's uh, before the pivot letter, let's say you start with the pivot letter of M, anything's before the pivot letter gets put in the left pile. Anything that's after the pivot letter gets put in the right pile. So you end up with two piles, uh, one with everything up to M and one with everything after M. So then you go to each of those piles and you perform the same uh, operations. You split them into two piles. And so for the pile that goes A to M, your pivot is probably going to be J or something like that. And you split it into two piles. So you keep on doing this, splitting your piles into twos. And eventually you'll reach a point where every pile just has maybe five books in it, and you can sort them quickly with insertion sort, but the point is the piles are in sequence. So if you sort the first pile, with insertion sort, the pile after it is is the next few letters in the alphabet, the pile after it is in the next few uh, letters after that. And while this algorithm quicksort is more complex to understand, when you actually apply it, it uses far fewer operations for a large pile of books. Um, So in the example I gave in the um, book for maybe a thousand books, you know, you're reducing the time it takes for a librarian to sort from several days uh, to an hour. Um, It's that sort of transformative difference. Um, So, There are lots of sorting algorithms, but those are kind of two extremes. Uh, We have the simple to understand algorithm that's very, very slow, and we have this hard to understand clever algorithm that's very, very fast. Um, So those examples allow allow me to illustrate what an algorithm is and the the importance of uh, clever algorithms to speed up tasks.
0: And we'll come to some very clever algorithms later on in the discussion. Um, to begin with now into the first chapter, ancient algorithms, what are some of the earliest, and I should stress, documented algorithms?
1: Yeah, and the, the documented is important because the oldest algorithms date from around four, thousand years ago, so this is a very long time ago. Um, the reason that we know about these algorithms is they were originally written down. On clay tablets, um, so etched, the algorithms uh, were written um, in a language that they now call uh, cuneiform. Um, and cuneiform, the symbols of that language are etched uh, into wet clay, so they're um, they're wedge shaped. The cuneiform term comes from it's Latin for the term wedge shaped, so they're Wedge shaped impressions on the clay tablet form symbols, and those symbols are a readable language. Um, the algorithms um, were written in this way in clay tablets. The clay tablets were dried in the sun to preserve them and were lost uh, thousands of years ago when the cities that they were written in were fell into ruins. Um, the clay tablets, the hard clay tablets survived, just, you know, they're, they're like stone once they're dried out. So they survived in the ruins of these cities for thousands of years before being rediscovered by archaeologists. Um, the language of the tablets had been lost in the interim. Um, they were finally decoded and deciphered. Um, And the tablets paint a rich tapestry of the life of the times. So we're talking about the region um, of Mesopotamia. So this is the land between the rivers and which straddles the border of modern Iran and Iraq. Um, Over hundreds of years, uh, the tablets document uh, civic society, taxation, letters, contracts, all sorts of daily life amongst all of that daily life have been found some tablets that actually describe the algorithms that the mathematicians of the day invented. Um, So those algorithms are the oldest uh, known account we have of using step-by-step procedures to solve uh, information
0: problems. And what were some of the information problems that these earliest algorithms were written to solve?
1: They solved uh, practical problems, so construction problems, um, and also uh, astronomical problems as well, and and tracking the stars and sun, Um, and also even things like uh, taxation and interest calculations were documented in this way. Um, The example I give in the book is... Uh, calculation um, of the sides of a rectangular cistern, presumably of water. Um, And the way it was written uh, is very similar to the sort of problems you see in a mathematical textbook today. There's a statement of the problem, what you have to do. Um, There's a statement of every step you have to take. Um, And then at the end, there's this statement, that is the procedure. Um, And it's kind of like a sign-off Nowadays, sometimes mathematicians use the Latin QED uh, to sign off. It's like a sign off at the end. Um, so the, the example that I have, the cistern calculation, you're given some information and some information is missing. Uh, the procedure calculates the missing information. The nice thing about it, it, it has an embedded example in there, a numeric example that helps you uh, follow the procedure. And people think that uh, these clay tablets were written by uh, students working with scholars uh, learning how to do their mathematics. So, you know, it, it could well be that this was a, essentially a student's notebook from 4,000 years ago.
0: And I couldn't help but notice reading some of these algorithms that as they presage modern textbooks, they also seem to already have most of the basic components we think about algorithms having. Uh, The use of iteration, the use of recursion, the use of of storage or memory to keep track of terms that will come back to be used later. Is that fair to say? Or are there there really basic components that have only come about in the past few hundred years?
1: Um, It is true to say um, all of the basic operations are there with the exception of if-then-else decision-making operations. So those aren't explicitly called out uh, in the tablets as far as we can see. Now, the Babylonians did document if-then-else statements uh, in their omens, so that their omens are uh, like the superstitions, you know, if if, if a, a, a man stands on the hill, it's a good omen, you know, this sort of thing. So they do possess the if-then structure, but. That's used for omens and and laws and things like that it's it's we don't see it to date being used uh, in algorithms so they had the concept but it wasn't applied so uh, when you're missing the the decision making element um, it's you're more geared towards procedural calculations uh, in terms of what you can do with the algorithm
0: jumping ahead to chapter three and I'm gonna Take into a, take into a couple of stories from this chapter that I thought were really interesting. Um, you recount how Charles Babbage and Ada Lovelace, names who will be familiar to anybody who studied algorithms, and later Alan Turing came to postulate and to write programs for what they may or may not have called, in these words, general purpose computing machines. So I hope you could give an abbreviated account of how they separately arrived at their projects.
1: Uh, Sure. Um, So Babbage um, proposed what he called the analytic engine in 1837. Uh, So 1837, you're talking about more than 100 years ago before the first real computers. Um, And what he proposed um, was a steam powered mechanical computer. Uh, So he'd taken two ideas that were around at the time. One was the idea of the mechanical calculator. Uh, so desk calculators had been invented previously um, and were manually operated to do simple calculations. Um, but there were, you know, individual calculations. It was a sum was done or a multiplication or Um And the steam engine had been invented uh, not long before Babbage's work in this. uh, So we were talking about the the context of the Industrial Revolution. So Babbage put these two ideas together. Well, if we uh, took a mechanical death calculator and we powered it with a steam engine, why couldn't we get it to do a sequence um, of operations one after another and reuse the results, the intermediate results? Um, So you can see there the idea of a computer and he applied the idea um, of punch cards uh, to store the data uh, and the instructions. And that idea came from Jacquard's loom, which was uh, invented as a, a programmable loom that could vary the way that the texture was woven. So Babbage took those ideas, proposed this machine, um, and tr- tried uh, to get it built. He'd, he'd worked on a previous machine called the Difference Engine um, and it had been construction had been funded by the British government the difference of the difference engine was uh, it wasn't a true computer it was really a calculator the analytic engine was more advanced and really was had it been built was really a computer it could support all the operations that, that a computer needed including the decision making func- making function now what happened with the difference engine was there were uh, Babbage's uh, and his assistant were unable to to complete building it um, because of the difficulties of manufacturing mechanical pieces with that sort of accuracy. So building a computer, mechanical computer requires very high precision cogs and gears, et cetera, and levers. And it just wasn't practical uh, using the technology of the day to fabricate those pieces with that sort of precision and reliability. So the difference engine construction failed. The analytic engine construction was never funded. Um, So although Babbage had the idea and worked on it for many years, uh, it never came to fruition.
0: And actually, if I could interject with one question, uh, one of my favorite parts of reading this chapter was learning how in the absence of a working or even prototype device, um, these researchers were able to test whether their programs actually performed the operations they were intended to
1: that's right so Charles Babbage and Ada Lovelace uh, actually wrote programs for this imaginary machine this machine that invented but didn't exist um, so they knew what cons- instructions that it would support and they took some uh, algorithms that they're familiar with mathematical calculations and actually wrote the uh, programs to do the computations and So we, we, one of the primary sources of Babbage's uh, ideas on the analytic engine comes from a paper that Lovelace wrote um, describing the machine and in describing the machine, she included um, the programs in an appendix and actually instruction traces So by hand, they were doing calculations, uh, applying the calculation. You know, once this instruction is performed, we get these results. Once this instruction is performed, we get these results. So it allowed them to prove that the the machine would be capable um, of doing the computation had it been built. Um, And that idea of tracing programs... We still teach it in, in first year and computer science here in UCD and everywhere else. So that's held as the, as the way to do these things. Um, so if we move forward to Turing then, so we're moving forward a hundred years uh, to when Turing proposed what's now called the Turing machine in 1936. So almost a hundred years between the two proposals. So what Turing did Um, He didn't, at that time, he didn't try to build a machine. So this was well before uh, the outbreak of World War II. Um, What he did is he wrote a paper that described an imaginary machine. And he didn't try to design a practical machine in this paper. It was an intellectual construct, an imaginary machine. And what it was, was a device that could be operated by a human that could perform algorithms. So you could give the human a series of instructions as to what to do with the machine, and if they carried it out, um, that would apply the algorithm. Um, So the machine was used by Turing to reason about what such devices could and couldn't do. So the Church Turing thesis states that any real-world computation could be translated into an equation what equivalent computation involving the Turing machine? So this is really interesting. What what they what they said is the Turing machine can do any algorithm, um, and then the reverse of that is true. Um, the Turing, if the Turing machine can do any algorithm, then an algorithm is anything that the Turing machine can do. So this became the modern definition of a computer. Um, it's a it's a real general purpose computer if it can perform the same task as a Turing machine. And if it can perform the same task as a Turing machine, then it can perform any algorithm. Um, so the, the, the paper uh, used this idea to make some proofs about what you can and can't do with computers. And they fundamental truths that um, uh, uh, we still rely on in computer science. So that machine was never intended to be built turing was involved in designing computers during world war ii he was involved in designing the bomb which was um, used uh to decode the german enigma machine uh messages Uh, the bomb itself was not a true computer it was a calculator an automatic calculator um turing after world war ii he left Bletchley park where he was working on cracking the, the codes Um, and he joined the National Physical Laboratory, and he led a team that was trying to build a computer, a real computer. Um, They failed in part due to the difficulties of working with Turing, um, and Turing moved back to, uh, ultimately to Manchester University, um, where uh, he joined Max uh, Newman, who uh, who had worked with Bletchley, uh, with, sorry, with Turing at Bletchley and also worked with him being a supervisor uh, as an undergraduate student. Um, Manchester University had constructed their own computer and when Turing joined them, he was actually more involved in programming the computer than constructing it. Um, Turing was involved in another computer being designed at Bletchley Park called the Colossus machine, uh, but it, he wasn't the, the the main designer there um so what you can say is there's a beautiful symmetry there so so turing actually failed in building a computer as well as babbage so turing's key attempt uh, to lead the construction of a computer was at the national physical laboratory in london and that project actually failed um it was actually when he was uh, and it, he worked on the software at manchester the bomb wasn't a real computer, and he didn't really work on the Colossus. So you have this symmetry, these these, uh, these um, great ideas um, not coming to practical for a for- for- 100 years apart.
0: The symmetry really came out of the chapter. And something it prompted me to want to ask you is to take the researcher's point of, points of view, um, rather, uh, in addition to the way that their work played out in practice. So If you could put Babbage and Lovelace in one hand and Turing on the other into conversation, would they say that they were engaged in the same enterprise? Did they have the same goals and the same long-term vision for what they were doing?
1: Yes, so uh, Turing was aware of Babbage's work. Uh, He actually mentions it in one of his papers. Um, And it's clear like he very much admired uh, Babbage's and Lovelace's uh, work um, on the computer. And, you know, in the paper, he kind of, it's clear he thinks what he's doing mirrors it in some sense. And he acknowledges, you know, this was 100 years ago. So Turing uh, very much saw it that way um, uh, and admired Babbage and Lovelace. What would Babbage and Lovelace have thought about Turing? I I think think Babbage um, would have been very interested in what Turing's doing, uh, was doing, and Babbage was also, um, you know, he was quite a socialite. Um, so he talked to all sorts of people at all sorts of stations in life. So I think he would have got on very well, uh, with Turing, um, whether they could have worked together, not so sure about Babbage. Babbage Mm -hmm. changed topic an awful lot during his life. He never really stuck with anything. He did lots of, uh, different things, um, um and Turing, you know, he has a reputation there, so I, I don't think they would have worked together, but I, I think that they would have been very in- interested in each other's, uh, work.
0: That's interesting to think about. Thank you. So in addition to some very well-known stories, the book includes many, I was impressed by how many lesser known stories in the development of algorithms, and I wanted to get into one of them next. Um, When we think about the history of mathematics and weather forecasts, we, at least I, most often think of Edward Lorenz and the origins of chaos theory. But Lorenz's observations were surprising in the first instance because there was a quite mature branch of mathematics that had been developed to forecast weather by that time with its own embedded assumptions. So could you tell this story uh, beginning from Lewis Fry Richardson and on to the early computer forecasts?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So you're right. I I think Lorentz is well known for uh, being one of the originators of the science of chaos. Uh, So this idea of the butterfly effect, where uh, you have a system that's highly dependent on initial conditions, a small variation in initial conditions causes a large change a few days later. And this is linked with weather forecasting. so, Lorenz discovered uh, chaos accidentally on a computer uh, simulation. Uh, and what he was doing is running simulations of how the weather would evolve um, over a period of time. He ran the simulation once and got, printed, got results from that. Uh, he ran it again, um, and he got completely different results. Um, and at the time, computers weren't terribly reliable, so he thought something was wrong with the computer. Couldn't find anything wrong. Eventually he discovered that the difference was that he had applied a different rounding to the input numbers of the initial conditions. Um, So he started to look into this. This was a real effect. um, And it led him to the conclusion that in the weather, uh, small changes in current conditions lead to big changes in what the weather will be a few days later. And this is the fundamental difficulty in in accurately predicting predicting the weather um, even over the course of a week. Um, now, what he was doing there, he was running numerical simulations um, of the weather forecast. So numerical simulations of the weather forecast, what you do is you, you take the atmosphere, you divide it up into cells, um, and for each cell, you say what the average... Uh, pressure, temperature, wind velocity, uh, etc., is within that cell. Um, so then you have these measurements for this 3D grid of cells. And what you do in your calculation is um, you, you move forward in a series of time steps. And at each time step, you calculate what the current conditions in each cell uh, are going to be. And that calculation for a cell is dependent on what's happening in the cells around it and how much sunshine it's getting and things like that and what its neighbors are doing so that calculation evolved over a period of time that idea wasn't Lorenz's. the the idea of using numerical simulations um, goes back to lewis fry richardson um, who was born in 1881 in newcastle in england Um, and after graduation he worked on short-term research positions for a while. But in 1913, he was appointed superintendent of a weather station in southern Scotland, Eskdielmuir. Um, it's the middle of nowhere, uh, very winds- windswept and stark location. And Richardson's duties were to monitor the weather, seismic vibrations, and the earth's magnetic field. So he had a house and lots of spare time. And he started to think about the problem of forecasting the weather. So he was uh, the, uh, the first one to really develop and apply the idea of a numerical algorithm for forecasting the weather. So the first person to really take on this challenge of dividing the atmosphere into a grid and calculating what uh, those volumes of gases were going to do based on the laws of physics. Uh, he, he took some data that he had for the weather over Germany in 1910, and he ran this simulation doing manual calculations. And this took months. I mean, we we're, were talking about a large area, and he was trying to figure out what every cell was doing uh, by doing calculations. At the end of all these months of work, his, his calculations were terribly inaccurate. Um, there were surface pressures that just weren't feasible. Um, and it didn't match how the real weather had unfolded over Germany uh, up in 1910. So he went ahead pressed ahead and wrote a book about this uh, experiment that he'd done in 1922. Um, and in it, he actually envisaged a great hall with 64,000 human computers, all using mechanical calculators to compute the weather forecast in real time for the entire globe. So ridiculous. I mean, 64,000 computers and his results were inaccurate. So the book was just not well received. Uh, People thought this was all a little bit uh, uh, outlandish. Um, That sat almost unnoticed for for 30 years um, until John von Neumann um, picked up the idea uh, for one of the applications for uh, his new computer at the Advanced Institute's Uh, sorry, the Institute of Advanced Studies in Princeton. Um, The Princeton computer wasn't ready quickly enough. um, So he and a team performed numerical calculations of the weather uh, on ENIAC, which was uh, one of the first computers. Um, And those calculations were done in 1950 and proved to be not completely accurate, but reasonably accurate numerical simulations of the weather as it unfolded in North America over four days uh, in 1949. So in a nice touch, uh, one of the key people in that team, Charney, uh, sent a copy of the paper describing this ENIAC forecast thing to Richardson. And uh, Richardson um, wrote back to say, uh, "Congratulate the team, and uh, admiring their enormous scientific advance on his own single and quite wrong result. So that's 1950. So that's well before Lorentz. So Lorentz was using the same sort of uh, simulation as um, von Neumann's team had used in 1950. And that was all based on the ideas that were first experimented on by Richardson in the 1920s.
0: Now, there's a lot of interesting stories, very interesting human stories as well in the early emergence of machine learning and artificial intelligence. And some readers might be surprised to learn just how far back that emergence traces. Um, I wanted to specifically ask about an implicit distinction that you make in this chapter. This is chapter five, between machine reasoning and machine learning. Um, What it tells me is that even as these very first thinking machines were being designed, what it means to think was already a subject of contestation. Is that right to say? And could you describe how these early machines thought?
1: Um, Yeah, that's true to say. I mean, this debate about computers and the human mind and the human brain, uh, was there from the very start of the invention of the computer. Um, So ENIAC, which as I say, was one of the first computers it was invented or built in the University of Pennsylvania in the U.S. during World War II and was unveiled to the press in 1946. So the headlines in the press the next day were about the Army's new wonder brain and its inventors and electronic brain computes 100-year-old problem in two hours. the press were very much thinking of this as a computer as a new brain, an artificial brain. Um, the the researchers were also thinking about the implication for sure. So, uh, in one thousand, nine hundred and fifty, Turing published a paper called "Computing Machine and Intelligence," published in a journal called Mind, which grapples with the questions uh, around machines and the mind and what the difference is and how how do you tell them apart when you have a really powerful computer. Um, So, for example, in that paper of a quote here, uh, the original question can machines think, I believe, to be too meaningless to deserve discussion. Nevertheless, I believe that at the end of the century, use of the words and general education opinion will have altered so much that one will be able to speak of machines thinking without expecting to be contradicted. So Turing was predicting the whole speed up and evolution and improvement of what a computer could do and the whole of AI and the computer would be in everybody's view thinking uh, by year uh, 2000. So he was a little bit ahead in his predictions, but I think given the scale of what he was talking about, it was very impressive. Um, so he was considering this idea of do computers think uh, back in 1950. And what he was saying is to him, thinking was irrelevant um, uh, because people would just believe that the machine was thinking or treat it as if it was thinking. Von well, Neumann, uh, who, as I mentioned, was worked uh, on the ENIAC and, and uh, developed his own computer in the uh, IAS, um, wrote a book on the topic uh, as well. It was published after his death in 1958, and that book was called The Computer in the Brain, and it compared the operation of digital computers and neurons in the brain. So... Um, really drawing together very current uh, at the time work um, and still relevant today. Unfortunately, it's still unf- it was unfinished. Uh, it would be very interesting to see how he intended to bring those ideas together. So that was a loss. Um, so, But he was thinking about this sort of thing in, in the 50s um, um, as to what the distinctions between the brain and computing
0: Passage from Turing is especially interesting. At the present day, the usual comment about AI, in my experience, is that intelligence uh, tends to be defined as what a human can do that a computer yet can't. And Turing seemed to have the opposite expectation of how we would think about these devices in several decades afterwards.
1: Yeah, so uh, I, I think for, for me, the whole the key question in all of this is whether what's going on in the brain is a computation or not. Um, So if if it's computation, then it could be replicated by a Turing machine uh, once we know what the algorithm is. Um, So is the the brain running an algorithm? If it is running an algorithm, then we can replicate it on something that's equivalent to a Turing machine, which is a computer. I mean, there's questions about, trying to build a computer with the brain's processing power. Um, we're not quite there yet, but we're getting very close. Um, but what we're missing here is the, is the algorithm. We, we, we don't really know how this works. I mean, we've made great advantage advances recently with artificial neural networks, which are modeled on what the brain does. But, you know, it's a very simplified version of what the brain does. Um, and it's, it, it's not at all... Uh, I, I think the research in the field don't think that the brain is just a massive artificial neural network. We're, we're not just going to get there just by throwing more and more processing power at this. We've got to actually rethink the algorithms and improve the algorithms, and 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 that that's the path to 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 improved artificial intelligence. So. Um, there's this fundamental question, is everything that's going on in the brain computation or not? We know that some of it is because we can replicate it with computation. There are researchers that say that things like consciousness um, are are not a computation and can't be replicated. There are researchers that say that com- uh, consciousness can be replicated. It's, it's just an illusion and it can be replicated with, con- uh, with uh, computation. So that the, there's no answer to that yet. That's still a, a philosophical debate. Uh, but Certainly some of the things that uh, go on in, uh, in, the, in the brain can be replicated with computation.
0: The ability to put enormous computational power into these algorithms in part, I think is responsible or I infer is responsible for the importance of understanding uh, and classifying how the the speeds and the uh, requirements that these algorithms come with. So, um, while the headliner of the next chapter is, and I'm sorry, I've never pronounced his name, Dijkstra. 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 Thank you. Dijkstra's root finding algor- algorithm. Uh, I think I gained the most from your very lucid explanation of complexity classes that uh, Dijkstra's was used uh, in part to motivate. So, could you? Tease apart these classes? Sure.
1: Um, Yeah, so um, in the example um, of the sorting books in alphabetical order, I I compared two algorithms, uh, insertion sort and quick sort, and I said that they perform the same task, it's just that one of them does it with less operations than the other. Um, So when we talk about algorithms we often compare their what we call computational complexity so the computational complexity of an algorithm is the number of operations it takes to complete and the number of operations that an algorithm takes to complete depends on the size of the problem so in the case of the book sorting uh, algorithm the size of the problem is the number of books okay so if you plot a, a graph with um, the uh, size of the problem along the x-axis and the computational complexity along the y-axis, um, as the size of the problem increases, inevitably um, the number of operations required to complete the task increases. OK, so there's a dependency there between uh, size of the problem and computational complexity. Um, now, How quickly that curve grows is really, really important um, for uh, the algorithms. Um, So if you have an algorithm where the computational complexity grows very slowly with the size of the problem, that means that you can complete the algorithm in a reasonable amount of time, even for uh, large sets of data. Um, So in the book example, Uh, Quick sort um, is what we would consider a fast algorithm, and you can use quick sort to sort a large number of books in a short time. There are other uh, problems um, outside of the problem of sorting books where the best algorithm that we've found um, is still quite slow. Uh, It still has a high computational complexity. That means that the rate at which the computational complexity grows with problem size uh, increases very quickly. And for those problems, we can solve them for small numbers of uh, inputs, Um, but because the computational complexity grows so quickly, we can't possibly solve them uh, for even moderate numbers of inputs. Um, so the the Dijkstra's algorithm that you touch on is, is an algorithm that's, uh, used to determine the shortest route between two points on a map. Um, so it's used in navigation apps on smartphones, uh, nowadays, a variant of it, um, and what you do with the algorithm is you give it a map. Um, so an example I use in the book is a, is a map of Holland with the cities marked on. Um, You know the distances between all the cities. You know you want to get from, let's say, uh, Amsterdam to Eindhoven. What's the best route? Um, So the algorithm uh, scans through the map and determines what the shortest route is between Amsterdam and Eindhoven, what cities, intermediate cities, you need to go through to get there in the shortest distance. Um, The... Algorithm for doing that, it, it checks um, at each step, uh, it assesses the route to the neighbors. So it, the algorithm starts uh, at the beginning point and assesses the distance to each neighbor. Um, it then moves on to the neighbors in turn and assesses the distance to each of its neighbors and progresses in that way. And at each step, it writes down the route taken so far and the distance. Now the trick in the algorithm is that it only updates the route and the distance if the newly calculated one is better than the one that's already written down uh, beside the city. Um, so, it it very quickly determines what the fastest route is by eliminating bad routes as soon as possible or slow routes as soon as possible, um, and that algorithm is 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 much quicker. Than an alternative algorithm, which is the brute force search, you list all possible routes and you 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 figure you calculate which one uh, is the shortest of all possibles. Um, so you have these comparisons that you can do between um, algorithms, uh, and you can actually measure their computational complexity. Um, so. What you're doing there is seeing how computational complexity varies with problem size. Um, So if we imagine that graph with the x-axis and the y-axis, some uh, algorithms that the computational complexity grows reasonably slowly are called uh, polynomial time algorithms. Um, And that means polynomial time algorithms are reasonably tractable. We can do pretty big problems uh, with the algorithms that we know today. Um, There's another class um, of computational complexity which is called um, where the rate at which the computational complexity grows is much faster. And these are problems in which the rate of growth is perhaps factorial, okay? So the rate of growth is very, very quick with problem size. Um, So if we go back to Dijkstra's algorithm, the brute force approach there is a factorial increase in computational complexity. Um, So what we can do is we can classify algorithms according to what's the fastest, sorry, we can classify problems according to what's the fastest algorithm for solving them, okay? So if an algorithm uh, can be solved in polynomial time, it's called, uh, it's put in the P class, it's called, if an algorithm can't be solved in polynomial time, sorry, if a problem can't be solved in polynomial time, it's called an NP problem. Um, There are some others there, I won't go into the details of them, but those are the kind of two primary classes. So P class algorithm uh, problems uh, can be solved reasonably quickly for reasonably large data sets. NP algorithms are uh, very slow to solve uh, even for moderate numbers of inputs. And what researchers have been working on is to try and find ways in which they can solve NP problems in P time. Um, So that's finding a faster algorithm uh, to perform the same task. And it's proven, there's been a lot of theoretical work in this, but it's proven very difficult to find um, P solutions to NP problems. And there's actually a $1 million prize available from the Clay Mathematics Institute of Cambridge, Massachusetts. It was initiated at the millennium. Um, And if you can prove uh, that uh, a way for an NP problem to get solved in P time, uh, you'll win the million dollar prize, or else alternatively, if you can prove that an NP problem cannot possibly ever, uh, the hardest of the NP problems can never possibly be solved in p-time, then you also win the prize. So if if you can prove or disprove this p versus np problem, you'll get a million dollars.
0: And I'll say for readers interested in the other subtypes of of, uh, computational complexity, do read the book because they are just as clearly explained. So Dijkstra's algorithm also leads conceptually into the next chapter in which you discuss efficient communication across computer networks. And I think the interesting question for, that was answered in this chapter for me was why isn't a shortest path algorithm sufficient in this setting?
1: Um, yeah, so shortest path algorithms are now used uh, for routing data across computer networks. Um, there are actually variants in Dijkstra's algorithms, so, so there's, there are slightly better ways uh, to do root finding than Dijkstra's algorithms, but they're, they're variants, they're extend, extensions of his algorithm. Um, the, rec- the reason why uh, shortest path algorithms needed to be adapted for routing in computer networks is due to the requirements of the problem. Um, so in computer networks, Um, The decisions as to how to route packets are being made um, at network points uh, that are dispersed geographically. So you need to make a decision at the local switch. You need to make another decision at the campus switch. Then you need to make a decision at uh, maybe a national switch as to where to send a packet. So those devices are all making their own decisions about where to send packets. And together, they uh, ensure that the network operates properly. So this is what we call a distributed system. So instead of one computer making all of the decisions on its own, we have lots of computers that interact to collectively make the right decision. So distributed systems are, by their nature, quite complex. So the decision being made uh, by the algorithm the routing algorithm have to be distributed across all these nodes they have to, you have to ensure that there's only small bandwidth used uh, in exchanging um, uh, probe information between these nodes you know if you if you sent a lot if you kept sending lots of data to measure the behavior of the network uh, you could probably um, figure out the routing a little bit better, but you would have the cost in terms of the overhead of sending all these probes out to figure out how the network's behaving. So you don't want to send too many probes because that uses up bandwidth. And then also most of these um, routing devices have to be pretty cheap. So the algorithms have to be low complexity and they also um, only have low storage um, on them. So you you don't, you don't want to have to store you know, the shortest route to too many uh, network nodes because that's very expensive. Um, so Dijkstra's algorithm was uh, originally designed for the scenario where it was running in one machine. The one machine has complete information. Um, in the routing case, you're designing for lots of machines and they've incomplete information and you want either very constrained devices computationally. So um, it's, it's uh, these kind of variations and requirements that lead you to slightly different solutions.
0: So in a later chapter, um, you touch upon an event that many listeners will recognize, and that is the competition of IBM's Watson with several human participants uh, at Jeopardy. So could you explain what the major problem its designers faced was and how they solved it?
1: So the major problem was is dealing with the variability in natural languages. Uh, so there are so many ways to express a concept or a question um, with the same meaning, but just using different words. Um, so what they were doing was trying to relate uh, an answer to a question. So this is the idea of the Jeopardy quiz show for anybody that, doesn't know it is that the presenter um, gives an answer and the contestants have to figure out what the question was that produced the answer. So it's kind of backwards to a normal quiz show. Um, So what the researchers were trying to do uh, with the Watson computer was develop software um, that would figure out uh, what Uh, The question was, so the approach they took was to store a huge database of information. So they downloaded textbooks, encyclopedias, religious texts, plays, novels, movie scripts, all sorts of information to the computer. So this was a large uh, IBM computer. IBM sponsored the work. Uh, It was was their research team uh, that did it to prove the capabilities of their most modern machines. Um, so they had a, an up-to-date, a large up-to-date uh, multi-node computer at their disposal. They downloaded all this information, uh, stored it in the computer, and then they had to write software which would somehow take um, this answer and relate it back to the question. So there, there uh, the team spent years at this, and their the, the solution um is really a collection of a lot of different approaches. So they have something, a technique in there called expert systems. They have another technique in there called case-based reasoning. Um, they even have some artificial neural networks in there as well. And what they do um, is apply all of these different techniques, score the results, and then the result with the highest score is the one that they rephrase. Um, as a question and output um, as the result uh, to be given back to the presenter. Uh, So just to distinguish between the different approaches, so expert systems um, are rule-based systems used in the 70s, particularly for artificial intelligence. And they're based around writing programs that have lots of if-then-else statements in it. So if the input is this, then the answer is this. Um, so it's quite conceptually quite easy, but the, the problem is those systems are very very brittle. Um, if the input matches an if statement, then they give a great answer. But if it's slightly different, then they give a terrible answer. So they're, they're very very brittle uh, in the answers they give. Then. The other type of approach, the case-based reasoning approach, is uh, like a matching algorithm. So what the software tries to do is match the keywords in the answer provided by the presenter um, with the text held in the information base. So whenever the, the, the algorithm scores, so basically if keywords match up between the answer provided and uh, an article from Wikipedia, let's say, then that gets a high score. So the keywords match. So what it's discovered is there's some sort of relationship between these two, and maybe the information in that article can be used to generate the question. Now, the advantage of case-based reasoning is, the, the if you like, the engine that does the analysis is always the same. It's really this matching and scanning algorithm, um, and you can uh, give a case-based reasoning system a whole other context by feeding in a different encyclopedia. Um, the matching is the same; you're just scoring and matching keywords between uh, the the prompt provided and and what's in the information base. Um, so, I suppose. Time, looking back at it now, um, that IBM Watson demo was really a moment in time when these older systems, expert systems and case-based reasoning systems were dominating. And very soon after that Watson Jeopardy appearance, suddenly there was a massive uplift in artificial networks. And I mentioned that there were some tiny little artificial networks in Watson, but They weren't used to any great extent. Uh, What really changed artificial intelligence was after Watson, the move to much larger artificial neural networks. And I think if somebody was trying to do Watson now, they would be uh, predominantly artificial networks and a little bit of expert systems and maybe a tiny, tiny bit of case-based reasoning as opposed to the other way around.
0: And that leads really well into um, a question about your last substantive chapter. There are several chapters and subchapters that deal with competitions between computers and human players in different games, and as you describe it, Alpha Go's tournaments mark the pinnacle of this kind of competitive computer gameplay. Um, the move from alphago the move from AlphaGo's original incarnation to Alphago Zero marked. Both a simplification and an improvement. So, I wonder if you could describe AlphaGo's neural network infrastructure. It is a neural network based, an ANN based um, system, and how it was per- surpassed by something with less complexity.
1: Yeah, so AlphaGo hit the headlines because uh, it beat a top three human player at Go. So It had been considered that Go uh, was the most complicated board game and that computers couldn't challenge humans for another 10 or 20 years. Um, All of a sudden, DeepMind, a London-based company, came along and uh, shattered that illusion. Their program, AlphaGo, uh, defeated Lee Sodell um, over a five-match competition. so that caught the headlines um, and of course, then the news media moved on um, a little bit later, about a year later, the team from DeepMind uh, published a paper describing AlphaGo Zero. So AlphaGo Zero was an update on AlphaGo. Um, the hardware was, was pretty similar, what, what it changed is the algorithms and, and looking at The description of AlphaGo Zero and the original AlphaGo, I think what we can see is um, the team learned so much about how to do this problem. um, And they were really pressed for time uh, to get the competition working. And when they finally took a breather after the competition, they went, oh, we could do this so much better there's so much fixes we could put in. So they took a year to put in all these fixes and they came up with AlphaGo Zero. And you're right, AlphaGo Zero is in a lot of ways uh, simplifies things and, and gets rid of a lot of uh, kind uh, of com- uh, complexity that they didn't really need. So um, AlphaGo used two neural networks, two very large neural networks. Uh, AlphaGo Zero used one neural network with what we call two heads. Um, so uh where the original had a policy and a value network. AlphaGo Zero uses one network for both policy and value, uh, and it just outputs two values, so it's just the last few layers are different in those two networks. So it's sharing information. So if you're sharing information uh, between two networks, it's it's faster to train. Um, and they also... And when you for- say...
0: Oh, sorry, when you say policy and value, you're talking about what decision to make and what predictive um, values to the outcomes of those decisions are, are fed into that decision?
1: So a policy network uh, guides the system in what next moves are worth considering. And a value network uh, assesses what the best move is. So there's a relationship there. Its purpose is a little bit different and a policy. Decision you want to avoid missing any uh, moves that could might be really good down the line. In a value network, you really you can't look ahead any further. You just need to make a decision. So this is right. I think this is the best. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna explore anything. I'm not gonna recommend anything that's a a maybe. Just this is what I think. Um, So, yeah, so similar evaluating the position on the board, um, but with slightly different goals in mind. Um, So so that was one change. Another change was they threw out um, all of the human-based training. So in the original version, they used a database of human-played games that was available on the internet. So they completely ditched that. So it didn't learn anything from humans. Um, It only learned from playing other versions of itself. So self-play using what's called reinforcement learning. Um, So it started totally randomly um, and just taught itself to play uh, by playing hundreds of thousands of games against itself. And the other thing they ditched was the rollout lookups Um, So these are a collection of of positions um, where they had stored a table um, of how good they were the probability of winning based on uh, previous knowledge. So what they're doing there is, again, throwing out human input. They're they're saying, forget about what humans say about how this game ends. Just figure it out yourself. Um, So all of this led to much, much faster training. Um, and in a match between AlphaGo Zero and AlphaGo, um, AlphaGo Zero 100 nil. Um, and AlphaGo Zero was trained, I think in 40 days. Um, and there's, there's even faster solutions, uh, since then. Um, so what was remarkable there is how good everybody thought AlphaGo was and a year later AlphaGo Zero blew it out of the water, and it blew it out of the water by ignoring uh,
0: the human inputs. And in particular, you titled this chapter Superhuman Intelligence. And as I remember, part of the reason is that by virtue of excluding all of this human input from the training process, AlphaGo Zero was able to come up with moves that no human had ever performed.
1: That's right. So um, AlphaGo Zero uh, played against the, the human number one player um, and defeated him. And when they went back and analyzed the games, there were strategies in there that humans had never used. Um, so now those strategies are being incorporated by the grandmasters in the way that they played the game. Um So we now have this situation where humans are learning from machines. Um, And it's not just um, a novice learning from a machine. These are the best players, human players in the world that are learning from the machine. So, uh, you know, I think we're entering a new realm there. I call this superhuman intelligence because you have to say that, uh, you know, in certain niche areas, computers um, are already outperforming humans. Now, the big big difference is humans uh, have what we call general intelligence. Uh, We can tackle lots of different problems. Um, Computers aren't like that yet. But um, in certain niche areas, they're achieving superhuman performance.
0: I think that's a great place to wrap up our discussion of the content of the book. I do have a couple of questions about... Um, the overall structure and writing of it. One of the recurring themes listeners might have picked up on is that many of the computing advances we celebrate are due less to faster processing or greater access to data than to improvements in the design of the algorithms. Now, is this mostly a reflection of the focus of your book, where the successes of algorithms are being highlighted? Or do algorithms really get short shrift in the way we think about advances in computing power?
1: Um, definitely algorithms get short shrift uh, in the way we think about this. So there so there is due to Moore's law there is this rising tide of computer performance and storage capacity and that's been a rising tide since the 1970s. It may it's definitely slowing down. It may end some days, but there's there's this rising tide, and and people put everything down to that rising tide of performance and storage. Uh, but actually, the real breakthroughs are in algorithms. Those those are the real game changers. So I was just talking about AlphaGo Zero there, uh, compared to AlphaGo. There there was very little difference in the hardware. There we were talking about one year different. You know, it was the algorithms that changed the performance radically. Um, um, and and you see that in in other areas um, that clever algorithms lead to breakthrough. You know, in the book, I talk about Google PageRank. That was uh, solving a problem uh, with a new algorithm, and they their hardware wasn't particularly remarkable at all, and they outperformed uh, all the other search engines just by solving the problem in a different way. Um, uh, in, in, yeah, so those those are examples there, and I think um, I, maybe listeners will be familiar with the author uh, Yuval Noah Harari that wrote uh, Homo Sapiens and Homo Deus. He's a he's an Israeli historian, and he's in his books he considers uh, Homo Sapiens. He looks at the trends of the past, and Homo Deus he looks at the trends of the future. And in Homodeus, he says the 21st century will be dominated by algorithms. Algorithms, arguably the single most important concept in the world. Um, so I, I have that on my website. I agree with him.
0: That is a fantastic quote for a book of this focus. Yeah. So I also thought your book was an exceptional work of storytelling. You weave algorithms and a lot of other technical discussions seamlessly into the narratives and the narratives flow naturally into each other, as we've um, hopefully shown in a couple of instances in our conversation. So <clears throat> could you say a bit about your writing process, how you chose the stories you did and how you put them together into the structure of this book? So
1: some of them I already knew um, and some of them I discovered while I was writing the book. Um, so I suppose the way I do it is a very iterative Um I, I, I do the research um, and try to pull up, point that out in the book, um, look at it, and I, I and do my research. I start wide and shallow, so look, look at lots of things very, very quickly, and sift that then and pick a smaller subset and look at that narrow and deep, um, so it's that kind of refining process. Um, and so that literature survey is where I turned up the, 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 the stories that I hadn't heard before. Um, and then in the writing, I'm very iterative. I, I, I write it, I read it, I go over it. So I, I saw an interview with Jeffrey Archer. Um, uh, the author, it's an English author, Jeffrey Archer, is um, well known for kind of thrillers and bestsellers and things like that. And he said in the interview that he does 14 drafts. And, and I took a shortcut. I did 13 drafts. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's just fixing it and fixing it and fixing it. Um, so uh, that's that's the way I go about it. Uh, well, what I find, the, the one tricky thing I find was actually when you're dealing with historical matters, it's very there, there's a trap there where you can very easily construct a convenient narrative. So you decide that this happened because of this. Um, and it, it makes sense, but when you actually dig, it, that's not the reason at all. You know, the, the, you, you're looking at the historical trends. You, all, you you try to put a, a, a logic on it, and then when you read more deeply, you know, it was actually just a complete accident, or you know, some random reason why why these two things happen at the same time. So um, that that's something that I I ended up uh spend a fair bit of time on is, is trying to ensure that the, the the kind of narrative was correct that you weren't just um superimposing your own um views and on and, and, and hypothesis and things
0: yeah i think that's very much appreciated from the modern reader uh there's a lot of older history which which falls deeply into that sort of narrative trap as you described it mm. um one thing we haven't touched on is the title of your book: um, "Puzzles that, or oh, sorry, <laughs> poems that solve puzzles." Is I take it your shorthand for an algorithm? So, do you want to comment on that choice of words?
1: Yeah. So, uh, when an algorithm is written down, it's it's written down line by line. You know, do this, do this, do this, do this, um, and there's m- s- frequently some in- indentation to show you know sections of instructions that need to be repeated or there are our, our, our if then else section so for me the way that an algorithm is written down it looks a lot like the way a poem is written down line by line um and also for poems they're you know you think deeply in writing them and they're well considered and they have a certain beauty and for me a really good algorithm is the same they're well considered uh, and they have a certain beauty a good algorithm in the way it achieves its task so to me, algorithms are a lot like poems, uh, but the big thing about a, an algorithm is that it actually solves a problem. Um, it's it's not just a, a, a reflection. It's not just a beautiful thing. It has practical purpose.
0: Yeah, it hadn't occurred to me until reading your book that parsimony as a virtue, as a, as a part of elegance really comes through in the comparison between algorithms and poems. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so good to, hear. to begin wrapping up, what is um, another piece of scholarship or media that you think makes a good companion to yours?
1: Um, so stylistically um, I've always really admired the code book by Simon Singh. Um, so I was trying to get towards that mesh of storytelling, historical narrative and technical uh, knowledge um, that he achieves in that book. It's a, it's a different um, topic, but, um, I, I, I like that style. Um, Content-wise, I am reading Turing's Cathedral, The Origins of the Digital Universe by George Dyson. So it looks very much at von Neumann, who I touch on uh, in the book. Um, so that's kind of a deep, deep dive in him. I'm enjoying that at the moment. Where uh, we're just talking about the, um, the work on AlphaGo um, so for people who want something lighter, there's a, there's a great film documentary on the competition between Lee Sodell and, and the AlphaGo uh, that's available on Netflix now, um, and it really it's, it's it's very good. It 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 uh, takes you through day by day that competition and the emotions and um, um, the outcomes and the characters involved. It, it,
0: it's well worth a watch. No, that's appealing. So you've commented a bit about what you're reading now. So what are you writing now? Are any book, book projects in the works?
1: Well, so I, I, I took on the head of school role just after I finished the, the book. So I'm, that's going to be very busy at the moment. is, is just uh, looking after the school and attending to matters here. I've a, I have a couple of ideas um, kind of on the, on the back burner. So I'm uh, looking forward to getting to those when I, when I free up a little bit more.
0: I look forward to seeing them. I hope you'll come back on New Books in Mathematics to talk about them when they're out.
1: I'd love to, yeah. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, I've been talking with Chris Blakely, author of Poems That Solve Puzzles, The History and Science of Algorithms, published by Oxford in 2020. Chris, thank you so very much for joining me.
1: Thank you very much, Corey. Really enjoyed it.